Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight through a series of interviews. The founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools, and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Ruben Nelson. For over 40 years, Ruben Nelson has offered futures oriented strategic advice to cabinet ministers, board members, and senior executives in every sector of Canadian society. He challenges those with whom he works with, not only to raise their game, but to learn to see, embrace, and cooperate with the long transformation we are all engaged in. His vision of an emerging co-creative civilization offers a basis for the hope that lies on the other side of despair. Ruben has written extensively on a wide range of topics, including civilizational paradigm change and strategic foresight 2.0 as the new cognitive work of leadership. Ruben is a graduate of Queen's University and Queen's Theological College in Kingston, Canada. He has also taught at Queen's University and the University of Calgary. Ruben is a fellow of the World Academy of Art and Science, the World Futures Studies Federation, and the World Business Academy. Welcome to FuturePod, Ruben. Thank you, Peter. I'm delighted to be here. So, Ruben, question one. What is the Ruben Nelson story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, I now understand that I got into Futures uh, in part by accident and in part by commitment. The accident part is that I now know, given my age, I'm 81, that I'm a white, privileged brighter than most, uh, more blessed than most male. I'm an INFJ, if you run me through Myers-Briggs. I'm an eight on the Enneagram, and I'm a visual learner. Now, if if you put all that together, what you get is somebody who finds it easy to be countercultural. That is to step outside of the culture that's around me and that I've inherited, even the culture that's formed me. And I was raised in Calgary, Alberta, when it was just an agricultural service center rather than an oil and gas town. And part of that, part of being a Calgarian, is that you learn that it's easier not to ask permission. If you see something that needs to be done, you just get up and do it. And the thought that you have to ask permission is is literally a foreign thought. If you put all that together, you find that it's easy for me to think about things that the culture doesn't want to think about. And the future is one of those. In other words, the way the culture normally thinks about the future is simply an extension, a better extension of what it's already got. As many cabinet ministers have told me, Ruben, if you come and sit in my office, you will find that people's vision of the future is the same thing that they now know and have, except all the problems have been airbrushed out. (laughs) <laughs> and all those holes where the things have been air, problems have been airbrushed out are filled with money and that's the fantasy that they have of the future. Yeah. I ran off to university uh, being an introvert. I didn't know it at the time, but I did have, even as I finished high school, a deep sense. I wanted to go to university where I didn't know anybody. What's more for nobody knew me because by the time I left high school, I was known throughout the city of Calgary in ways that 
are, are not healthy for 18-year-olds. <laughs> Ended up at Queen's, which is kind of to Canada what Yale or Princeton would be to, to the United States. And in my third year, uh, given some encouragement of some remarkable faculty, I and a first-year student who was very attractive, and a rem- both as a personality and as a, as a physical person, and we are to this day dear friends, uh, Jenny Dobson, I talked her into co-chairing with me what may have been the first formal futures conference in Canada on the future of the university. Wow. And we went about, given that I was a philosophy student, we went about it in a way a philosophy student would. And that is to think about, to get somebody who actually was knowledgeable enough to think about what were the presuppositions of the first universities in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries? What was the culture like at the time that would allow those presuppositions to fit in the culture? And where are we today? And what's emerging? And do the presuppositions of the university fit even today's world, which was then in in 1960? I mean, Eisenhower was president of the United States at the time. It was that long ago. And that, I kind of like that experience. Mm. I, by that time, had come to read some things written by Robert Theobald uh, and Jack Seeley. Jack was the dean of studies at the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions, that uh, Robert Hutchins had formed in Santa Barbara. And in the 60s, it was probably the most serious and able uh, think tank in the United States. So that it turns out that, that I fell into the community somewhat by accident, but because I was in it early, I also helped to grow the community. Right. So I was the first person in Canada to write an article on paradigm change, in 1970, I went to work in Ottawa for uh, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and he asked me and another man to create a conceptual framework for social policy. And we said, well, what's a conceptual framework? Because you've got to remember, this is 1970. And they said, well, we don't know, but we'll recognize it when we see it. <laughs> so, I mean, this has got failure, of course, written all over it. <laughs> but the prime minister said to us, Social policy is patches on patches on patches, and we have to tidy it up. Now, in that judgment, he was quite right. If you actually look at the laws, I dare say, of Australia, but I haven't looked at them. But if you look at the social policy laws of Britain, for example, the very first social policy is the poor law. And you ask, well, who's that for? Well, it's for the poor. If you're not poor, it's not for you. And then it dawned on people that some people were poor and unwed mothers. So they passed another law for unwed mothers. And of course, some of the unwed mothers were poor, but some of them weren't. So it means you had two pieces of legislation applying to some people, only one to others. And of course, by the time we were asked to do this job, there were 147 pieces of legislation. So that in a modern world, we do pieces better than holes. We do silos better than holes. Even today, in uh, any given modern city, There is no institution that wants all of you as a person, as a spirit, as a psyche, as a body. They want bits of you, depending on your age and skin color and whatever else. So we actually did profound enough work that we reported to the prime minister that uh, he's quite right that social policy is patches on patches. He's quite right that it needs a coherent conceptual framework, but that if we simply tidied up 
the ideas that were fundamental to modern social policy, he would actually damage with his new social policy, he would damage systematically, for now he was damaged randomly. Yeah. But we couldn't say to him in 1970 that he needed a new paradigm change because the language of paradigm change wasn't yet in good currency. I had read the stuff, as had a few others, but no people weren't talking about it, even senior people in the public service. He could not bring himself to understand that we were offering him an opportunity to be transformative in a way that ironically, 50 years later, still not has happened uh, anywhere in the world. And of course, in a sense, given the perfectly understandable way that bureaucrats and politicians would think at the time, he really had no choice but to fire us. But when, once you've been fired by a prime minister, nothing else frightens you. <laughs> Great gift. Yeah, true. And in Ottawa at the time, uh, the Science Council was doing extraordinary work on the Conservative Society. Uh, the Economic Council had a mild interest in futures. And there were some extraordinary people doing futures work so that we, in 1976, formed the Canadian Association for Future Studies. And for its first 12 years, it was administered out of my office by the woman I worked with. So, I mean, I became part of the futures community in Canada and the world by helping that community get founded and grow. Well, effectively, you grew your own community because obviously it wasn't there. Just, I mean, it's extraordinary. If you, I mean, in a sense, I had the same experience as Bill Gates. Uh, when IBM needed somebody to write a program for what at the time were considered toys by IBM, what today we think of as a laptop, what Bill Gates found is that if you, no matter what your age is or what your background is, that as long as you can do the work, people will pay you. The difference is, in his case, they paid him in hundreds of millions, and in my case, you get paid in quarters. <laughs> yes, it's certainly been the experience, and I still see it around us now. Where now, it's one of the most heartening aspects of our community is how new communities are created out of out of people who want to do the work. They actually want to do the work and they need to find some people they can work with. And so they set about to build their own community. Yes. I mean, as you and I were talking earlier, uh, Australia is a unique country with its own culture, true of almost every place. Canada, one of its characteristics of a Canadian mentality, and I, my own story is it's because so much of the winter, so much of the year here is so damn cold. I mean, we have leaves on the trees for only seven out of 12 months mm. that it's cold and you spend a lot of time indoors sipping scotch and thinking quietly. And so futures in Canada has a has a depth to it that is not unique, but that is not typical. So that, for example, in the United States, as futures was developing in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there were government institutions and corporations willing to say, we want the practical advantage of this now. Mm. And we in Canada envied them because we had almost none of that. But it meant that we fell into deep conversations about the underpinnings of the futures. So that in 1975, when Jay Ogilvie and others who were working with Willis Harmon at his educational research center at Stanford wanted to do a study on paradigm change, Willis said to them, well, the only guy I know who's thinking about changing cultural paradigms is this guy, Butch Nelson in, in Canada. So go talk to him. 
because I had uh, around me Canadians for whom thinking about at a paradigmatic level was just normal, whether the field was futures or history of religion or economics or whatever. So in a sense as well, there's a Canadian flavor to this that no virtue on my part. You mentioned a name there that hasn't actually come up very often in the interviews, but Willis Harmon was a very interesting man in terms of the whole you know, global mind change process, wasn't he? A- absolutely. Um, I grew up at a time, got to remember, I grew up in Western Canada, so I was not in any way schooled in a proper way. I mean, I didn't even know there was a Canadian establishment, let alone you know, what university they sent their kids to. So I didn't know who to suck up to. But it meant that as an undergraduate and even graduate student, if I read something interesting, I would pick up the phone and phone them. And the the exciting thing, well, I mean, the blessing for me, again, no virtue on my part, but in the 60s and 70s, long distance phone calls were still kind of mysterious. Yeah. Meetings would be broken up with, but it's long distance. God herself was calling. And so I got to know Willis because I had phoned him and he was kind enough to talk to me because I was interested rather than say, listen, you little snot, go read stuff in the library and then call me back when you actually know something. And so Willis and I became uh, dear friends while he was at Samford and then when he moved to Ions in the 80s. Yes, we'll have to uh, we'll have to have you back and have a conversation about Willis Harmon because he uh, again one of the great thinkers that really did help our field. Yes, we'll do that. Let's move to question two, the one where I ask the guest to talk to the listeners about a framework or a you know, conceptual framework, if you like it, or, a, or an approach that I think is central to how they do their work and do their thinking. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? Well, I was raised as a modern person. So I was raised with a sense that there are objective things in the world, and those objective things are totally impersonal, and that anybody in any culture at any time would come to the same conclusion if they are well-trained and well-schooled and properly educated. I've now come to a version of constructivism as the uh, understanding. So to put it simply, I now understand that reality itself can be construed. And what's more, that the human brain has evolved to construe reality, which means then that there's an endless way of actually experiencing reality. And so the, the fundamental syllogism I work with is this, that the way we present ourselves to reality and the way, therefore, that we approach reality and the way that we allow reality to grasp us will determine the realities that we know and experience. Mm. That's the first sentence. Second is that the realities we know, come to know and experience will determine the ways we respond to reality and therefore behave in the world. Second sentence. Third sentence is our responses to reality and the ways we behave in the world will shape our future. And this is, a, in Aristotle's terms, this is an A form of a syllogism. It is logically valid. 
So the conclusion is true if the statements are true. So you can move from the first assertion that the way we present ourselves and approach the world and allow reality to grip us will shape our future. And so for me, that's been come to be at the heart of my work, both as a researcher, a futures researcher, and as a practicing person who, who does strategic foresight. And so for me, the key to futures work is, in fact, uh, as you suggested yourself, ontological and epistemological. What's the nature of reality and the different ways it can be known? And what are the different ways we as human beings can know it? And can we move beyond the kind of relativism that just says, well, there are different ways of knowing it, mm. and they're kind of all equally good or all equally bad. We'll judge them all by scientific objectivity and throw them all out. Or we'll go to relativism and say, well, they're all equally good. Uh, I'm unhappy with either of those yeah. uh, accounts. And so one of the things I have come to do is develop a simple two-by-two two matrix. You can tell I've lived as a consultant because I can do a two-by-two <laughs> two matrix. Um, it's a simple two-by-two two matrix that that literally sets out the four ways of grasping and knowing reality that seem to me to be logically possible on this earth, in this universe, by us as humans. And to simplify it, in the top right-hand corner uh, are indigenous ways of knowing and living. And at a, a root paradigm level, I make the claim that all indigenous cultures at a root paradigmatic level are, at very deep levels, are the same. And one of the things they all agree on, for example, is that they are all living creatures in a living universe and that they do not control that universe but nor are they helpless within it. And that allows an extraordinarily endless ways of being indigenous, depending on the landscape you're in, how close you are to the equator, all kinds of things, how far you are, up, uh, what your altitude is of your culture. So indigenous, so I've come to understand indigenous people as a particular way of responding to and knowing reality. That worked for 300,000 years and was the only way that we as a species lived until about 10,000 years ago, as you know, with the Holocene, when the earth warmed, some of those people, it was optional, it wasn't required, but some of those people found that they could move through horticulture to settled agriculture. And once you get into settlement, once you get into a settled culture, as opposed to a somewhat nomadic culture, then, in fact, one of the understandings about reality has changed and one's the same. The one that's the same for settled people, and I don't mean us modern people, I'm thinking of settled people eight, ten, six, four thousand years ago, is reality is relational, which indigenous people know. Indigenous also know that it's dynamic. And what, once you're settled, we end up gravitating to a sense of reality that's static. And so, for example, writing emerges. No indigenous people developed writing because writing allows you to think about, for example, philosophical propositions. And you've done enough philosophy to know that a philosophical proposition is supposedly to carry the same cognitive content at any time to any people in any given language 
which if you know anything about linguistics and history is actually a pretty silly idea, but it's a perfectly legitimate idea if you live in a world where reality itself is static and therefore truth is unchanging. So you get permanent as opposed to temporary hierarchies. What we've done in the last thousand years is hold on to, as we develop modernity, we held on to the static understanding of truth. Aristotle held that, for example. So as you know, for Aristotle, God was the unmoved mover. Things that moved participated in history, and to participate in history is over time to be degraded. He didn't understand entropy as we understand it today, but he absolutely understood that to participate in history is to participate in an entropic dynamic, that you do become degraded. And so that which is most real, namely God, has to be unmoving. So God is the unmoved mover. And truth, God's truth, is absolutely unchanging. The Catholic Church believes that to this day, as do, of course, as do, of course, as does, of course, Islam, because both were formed at a time when this ontological and epistemological orientation was dominant. And what we've done with modernity is hold on to the static nature of reality, but divide it up in pieces. We've kind of said with Aquinas, do you remember Aquinas taught at the University of Paris in the late 13th century? And one of the, he was the first major thinker in the Western world to allow us to, to think in silos. He allowed the legitimacy of thinking in his language of nature without grace, that is the earth without God. And he would hasten to say, and of course, we wouldn't do that very long because we realize it's all within the economy of God. But at a meta level, we understood that, well, if you can think about the earth without God, could we think of philosophy without physics? Could we think of chemistry without physics? Could we think of physics without the history of physics? Could we think of men without women? Could we think of boys without girls? And modern culture is a culture that's built on a static understanding of reality. So that Newton, who one of the founders of the Royal Society, believed, as did everyone else at his time. In other words, it was common to, under, to science at the time that scientific truths, if they really were scientific truths, did not change and were the same for everybody at all times in history. And as an undergraduate at Queen's, that was still the philosophy of science that was being taught. Uh, nobody teaches that today. Uh, we all get it, that we live in a dynamic universe. So that what this does is has allowed me, this simple little framework has allowed me to develop a map on which I think I can diagram the uh, human evolution for the last 300,000 years and stops along the way and test it by then asking the kind of questions that in a sense any scientist would ask, well, if this is true, what else would be true? If this is not true, what could not be true? And it, it holds up remarkably well. So that the way I do futures, in a sense, in a funny kind of way, is on the basis of really deep history. It's not big history, the way that big history has come to be talked, but it's deep history, understanding the deep evolution of the most fundamental ideas that underlie a culture and a form of civilization, how they have evolved 
uh, over the period of time we know anything about, which is really only about the last 40 to 100,000 years. And even there, our knowledge is so sketchy, it's, it's marginal. But in fact, it, it actually holds up, which then allows me to pretend that I actually know something about what I'm talking about. One of the things, I think it was in your first supposition, which I just want to ask you about, is this notion that we can be captured by reality. And I wonder to what extent to practice deep thinking it is necessary to have a practice of resisting capture in order to have perspective and the ability to understand. Oh, wonderful insight. You see, one of the beauties of modernity is that the first and last, I mean, these, these guys at the Royal Society, they're serious. I mean, I don't mean to put them down, uh, but we do have to learn to laugh at ourselves. We are at a stage in history where if you really want to learn at all deeply, expect to be embarrassed. And laughter is a better response to embarrassment than anger. <laughs> so learn to laugh at yourself more than others, because then you can laugh with others as they laugh at you. And you can gently laugh at them and laugh together. One of the, the features of First Enlightenment science is that there is an utter and total difference between objective, unchanging, dead reality and living subjectivity. That's us who knows reality. And, but part of the myth was that we grasp reality, but since reality itself is dead and material, it has no grasp on us, which also means that we, by definition, modern people are more blind to the nature of the culture they live in than any other type of culture that we've ever had, whether that settled agriculture-based cultures or indigenous cultures. So there's a sense in which we who are modern are handicapped so I deliberately talk about the grip that reality has on us because it does. <laughs> <laughs> and if we don't know it, then, and, and so that's why I'm willing to say that most, the vast bulk of what passes as futures work today are modern men and women trapped within modernity, having, you know, doing in a sense good work by modern standards but what they're doing is extending modernity. And if we live at a time when modernity has no future, then extending modernity is among the least useful things we can actually spend our time at. Yeah, I think Zia's term in, is, um, Isaiah Sada talks about post-normal futures, and he talks about really the, the major narratives that have sustained us for you know, the last hundred or so years are failing. In other words, there is no point trying to extend those narratives into the future. We haven't got the new narratives for the post-normal future. That's you now we are between narratives. We are between realities. Yes, and I mean the thing I would add to that is that if you don't have a more, I mean that idea that we are between dreams, that the mythology that we have lived by and is embedded in our curb heights and street patterns and God knows everything we do is actually failing and will fail us. The trouble is most people who say that, whether they talk about an ecological civilization you know, as next or whether they talk about a great transition or any of the kind of languages that are out there to try to say this is bigger than a bread box and really important, almost none of those people have a model of modernity 
so that they can tell when they're outside modernity, that they can actually tell when they have reached escape velocity. We, We know when we're shooting things to the moon, if you don't reach escape velocity, your rocket just is captured by the gravity of the the gravitational pull of the earth and you fall back into the atmosphere and burn up. And I would argue that most futures work today is of that kind, that it, it, it isn't helping us with what the big project of the 21st century is, and that is to escape modernity. But in order to do that, we actually have to have some non-trivial and reasonably sound cognitive ideas Now, these ideas, it turns out, also have to be psychological and spiritual and emotional because one of the characteristics of being postmodern in a non-trivial way is that you have to become relational and integral again in a dynamic world. Thanks, Bruce. I think it's a good segue for third question. The emerging futures around Reuben Nelson. So what are the futures that that you're sensing are, if you like, wanting to be? And also, and again, you can set the frame about how you sense the emerging future, whether you're doing it within your lifetime or, or any time frame. But you choose your time frame, you choose your emergent epistemology and ontology that you want to talk about? Well, let me just build on the last comments. I realize that my practice of futures is not unique in the world. There are other people who do futures as, if you like, just a different form of historiography. You know these folks. Uh, Sohail and I have had this conversation. We, We discovered 20 or 25 years ago that he had developed his causal layered analysis quite independently of my work. I mean, we didn't know each other. And I had developed a causal layered uh, view, focuses more on holding things together. So we came to call call it causal layered synthesis, not being prejudicial or anything. I mean, it's a conversation that Sohail and I have had. But, But we realize, as does Rick Slaughter and you, that this is a minor voice in the futures world. Um, I, I mean, we both know that most futures work is not even done by formal futurists. Most futures work is done in think tanks and universities and corporations without any people who are doing it have any formal training in futures thinking, because that's just democratic, that futures in a sense belongs to all of us quite rightly, uh, but there's also an illusion that it's not kind of hard to do if you've read a good book. So that the way I practice futures is extended historiography that is grounded in philosophy and theology and political theory and a ton of data and rich conversations with some of the, um, certainly the best people who are willing to spend their time with me. Uh, there may be better people on the planet who won't spend their time with me, but that's my problem. And I've come to the view, now when I teach, what I say openly to a potential client is if all you want to do is to succeed in the short run in the modern world, like you have no serious aspiration, of course I want you to succeed in the short run because then you're around to do something significant. But if you don't have, that one of the requirements is that you have 
a non-trivial aspiration to actually make a difference in history. If you don't, there are other people who are cheaper than I am and will be a lot easier to work with because they will reinforce stories that you desperately want to believe are true. Mm. And I will tell you that, that those stories are not true. And so I'm hard to work with. And I found that, that the most significant work, this is true over a 50-year life, that the most significant work I've done is with people I've already come to know and trust as friends with whom I've had an increasingly deep conversation about the nature of the world and what needs to be done in it. And then when they've wanted to do really significant things, they've said to me, Butch, because that's how they knew me, you know, I, wanna, I want you to come and work with me because I want to change the culture of my organization. I want to change the trajectory of my organization. And typically I would say to them, the price I will exact to start with is a long dinner in which we will talk about your aspirations and what you think you're getting into and whether you really understand, whether you're really up for that. Because I'm going to explain things to you about what this journey is going to be like that you don't yet understand. The kind of blowback you'll get, the kind of trouble you'll cause yourself, the kind of trouble there will be just because we are trapped in modernity and don't know it. And if you then still want to do it, of course, I'll work with you. So that's the way in, in the sense of how I go about my work. The sense I have of the future then, I spoke of, I think I was the first person on the planet. There's no way to test that, of course. So I can go about saying it and, and nobody is around to say that I'm wrong. To, to apply the concept of paradigm and paradigm change to whole cultures. So I talked the government of Canada in the mid-1970s into what was then a $100,000 project. Today would be a million-dollar-plus project to literally let me spend a year and a half thinking about when I'm talking about cultural paradigm change, what the hell do I really mean by that? And that gave me a leg up to think about on this path to think about and make the distinctions I now make about a form of civilization, indigenous, settled agriculture, and modern, as forms of civilization with very different cultures exemplifying them. But I'm now comfortable with the thought that our modern techno-industrial form of civilization has no long-term future. And it's not merely for the reason that most people talk about, that it's getting us into trouble with the physical universe climate change and drought and all those kinds of things. I mean, all of that is true. So ecologist economic friends, uh, I believe them and, and accept you know, that we're headed for trouble that may well kill us. But the philosopher and theologian in me says, what we now know about reality is that it is that the indigenous people in a broad way we're actually closer to the truth than any of the rest of us have been in the last 10,000 years. And that is that reality is dynamic and relational, which is what makes it construable. And we have construable brains. And the interesting thing is we've done enough modern science to now that modern science is stumbling into this space, whether you're looking at neurophysiology or a whole host of other things. And so it's not only that modernity is letting us down because it may lead us to a death trap. It's that its foundations are crumbling in any case, 
and we'd be pretty silly to hang around a place with crumbling foundations. So there's a very positive story here that is not well told. People who worry about the long-term future are far more impressed. Uh, I mean, I think of Rick Slaughter's book, I'm an interesting and powerful book about the greatest wake-up call in history, but it's focused almost entirely on the ecological collapse and not on the, the, the discovery of new foundation, whereas in its own way, the Royal Society was founded with the excitement of thinking we have new foundations to live on, and it released extraordinary energy that was good for four or 500 years. What I see myself as doing is wanting to tell the same story, but as a story, as I say to people often in speeches now, I'm going to tell you a story that you will be tempted to hear as bad news. I want you to be open to the possibility that it's really good news and that you'll stay with me to the end of the story so that you'll understand that I'm telling you a story that understood in modern terms is bad news. There's no future for modernity but actually is very good news in that we're actually maturing enough to outgrow our modern selves into something that the world has never seen before. And, and that's quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And so that that adventure, it seems to me, is well worth telling, uh, researching, thinking about, talking about, writing about. So you're telling an allegorical story in some respects. Yes. I don't pretend to be the only one on the planet who would speak broadly in these terms, uh, only that it's a minority story that is not yet well understood. I don't know any city council, government agency. I don't even know any university as a whole institution has wrapped its head around the story enough to say, this is a powerful enough story that we have to organize around it. But you did suggest that there's signs, early signs, that this story is coming true. So what are some of the early signs that make Ruben feel hopeful that the story is starting to get traction? I just find an increasing number of quotes. I mean, one of the things I look for, if you're just kind of doing science and you've got a hypothesis that's a fairly big hypothesis, then the way you test that hypothesis is to ask, what else would be true if this hypothesis is true? Now, those are confirming things, and we all want to be suspicious of a bias to, for confirmation. But the confirmation bias is legitimate because, as any scientist will tell you, when it turns out that the hypothesis is confirmed, we feel good about that. Yeah. You also have to test it by trying to ask what things, if they happened, would prove the hypothesis to be false. And so there's some element of falsification. So I find that, for example, I read in, I've forgotten his name now, I don't have the slides in front of me. One of the godfathers of complexity theory was reflecting two, three years ago in a little article on the significance of the fact that complexity theory had been around for 40 years now. And essentially what he says is that the emergence of science which originally was a story about how we could command and control the world, and he's absolutely got that right, is now teaching us a new to have a new relationship with reality. Now, these are his words, not mine. I, yeah. I mean, I just look for this stuff and find them. 
And he says, basically, what it's saying to us is instead of a command and control stance, that what you want is extraordinary sensitivity as you approach reality. Now, I go on when I use this in a, in a speech to say, treat it as approaching either a grizzly bear or your lover. In either case, you need extraordinary sensitivity if the encounter is to turn out in a way that you're happy with. So that that kind of data is literally all over the place now if you know how to look for it. Part of our problem is that we don't yet have a gestalt of a literally a post-postmodern reality that's common enough that we know in a disciplined way how to look for it. And I say that in part as a judgment on myself that I have not written nearly enough. I've written all kinds of stuff, but mostly for clients or in esoteric places. And I've not written nearly enough for a lay educated audience to, in effect, answer the question if some people say uh, quite legitimately, all right, Ruben, teach us how to do that without having to do it as a PhD course. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how you know, deconstructionism and uh, other you know, critical theories, one that's being talked about quite a lot now, is that the notion of pulling apart epistemologies, paradigms, can seem empowering at the time, but it does presuppose the difficulty that it's in some ways it's easier to disassemble an existing thing as it is to begin the process of assembling or synthesizing the next one. True for all of it. I mean, one of the things I think tends to be true for us as human beings, not as if there's a fixed human nature, but one of we do seem to have some biases. And one of those biases is we want to tell ourselves stories that are comforting, that help us go to sleep at night and get through the night. And therefore, in that sense, I want to give two cheers for being suspicious. I'm one of the few people who will uh, partway through a speech stop and put in a few good words for cynicism, because cynics tend to see things more deeply than the rest of us. Now, they tend to get stuck in their cynicism. They don't work through it. And postmodernists, one of the stories they told themselves that gave them great comfort because it said, we're so wonderful, there's nobody can, can go, there's nothing beyond us. And that's a perfectly normal human instinct that we've reached the top of the mountain and there's nothing higher. We are the cat's pajamas, as Fukuyama blurted out in his silly little book in 89. Moderns are the end of history. Yeah. And what the postmodern myth was is that postmodernism deconstructs all metamyths, except, of course, the metamyth that postmodernism deconstructs metamyth. <laughs> and so they, they have no reflexive capacity. So in that sense, they showed themselves to be children of the modern culture because the first enlightenment requires us to be logical and empirical. It does not require us to be reflexive. Whereas an indigenous culture requires reflexivity and the kind of culture we're now headed to requires even a meta-reflexivity. We have to learn to be reflexive even about our reflexivity, to ask rude questions even about the quality of our reflexivity. I wonder too, Ruben, whether we need to become consciously normative again 
in the respect that we need to start articulating while while any future that I may prefer may not necessarily be a preferable future for everybody, but the notion that we have to we have to accept that we wish I think you said it that you want to work with people who want to make a difference that is a normative statement. Do we have to to some extent rehabilitate uh, the normative notion of creating a future that I believe is better? Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, oh Peter, uh, in spades one of the places that modernity gets us with this absolute distinction between persons who are subjective, who in their judgments create value, and an objective and dead universe, which in principle has no value other than the value that human beings give it, which is, of course, at the heart of modern economics. So that we have to, that in the reconstruct, that's why at root, it's an epistemological and ontological task at its heart, it means a new understanding of the question, a new answer to the question, what's the nature of reality? A new understanding of the question, what's the nature of persons? And a new understanding of the question, how do persons relate to reality? And it turns out that we are all bundled up in this together and that to make the kind of objective normative distinction that is now so common in modernity is simply one of the stories that seem to work for us. It's like so many things that's common that we say today, it worked for us until it didn't. And now it clearly isn't. So of course, but it means that we have to also be normative in a way that we have a profound sensitivity, not to relativism. In other words, the the only place you can go from objectivity within a modern frame is to relativism. And that seems to be an unsatisfactory place. So we seem to be stuck. When you escape modernity, you can cope with relativity, which means that, that all of your judgments are affected by time, space, language. In other words, there's no such thing as timeless truths. There are only statements and expressions that have more integrity and authenticity than others. And so truthfulness and authenticity and honesty and courage and data are all wrapped up. So we're being driven back again to think about character and character formation and the character, not just of individuals, but of communities, of families and whole cultures. And in that light, there's a sense in which we will be sympathetic with fundamentalists who are appalled at how corrupting modern culture has become. Now, that doesn't mean we have to either agree with Donald Trump, who takes advantage of fundamentalists, or agree epistemologically with the fundamentalists, but it does mean we should show them some empathy to be able to say, yes, it is the case that modern culture in its late stages of development, that's particularly over the last hundred years, has become a corrupting and addictive culture. And to not understand that and to not want to flee from it is to not understand its power and to set yourself up for failure. Thanks, Ruth. Fourth question, the communication question. How do you describe what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? 
let me tell you, Peter, I do whatever, whatever it is I do, I do it badly. <laughs> In other words, there's a popular image of being a futurist. And that, as you know, is that you've kind of got a crystal ball. In Canada, I don't know what you know about Canadian ice hockey. I know when Gretzky was a god. That's all I know. You know when Gretzky and the famous quote that he instinctively goes to where the puck will be. Yes. And people love to quote that, thinking that's the future, without understanding that that's a thoroughly mechanical model and a deterministic model of the future. Now, hockey is actually a complex game that isn't deterministic, but people use that as if there is a predetermined place where the puck will be, and somehow, mysteriously, Gretzky knows it. Gretzky knew that he's playing a complex game. It's just most of the people who quote him live in a deterministic world, so they treat it deterministically. So that to say that you're a futurist, what most people want from you is, tell me what the future will be so I can adapt to it. Tell me where the puck's going to be. You know that as well as I do. And if you're honest with them, you end up having to say as clearly as you can and as gently as you can, I don't in any way blame you for wanting from me what you've just asked from me, but I cannot give it to you. What I can give you is even better. I can help you develop an understanding that you won't want it anymore and that therefore you'll be able to dance more adequately with a changing world that you can't control. Well, as you might imagine, by the time you've said that, what started out as potentially 100 clients, you're lucky if two are left in the room. On the other hand, those two turn out to be quite extraordinary because they're people who just through their own ways have become people of depth. My grandmother used to say to me, I want you to grow up to be far-sighted, broad-minded, with a depth of judgment. And it's people who meet those standards that are the people I look to for clients. And when I talk to people now, I try to talk to them in a way that's both empathetic, but also quite clearly say, if we do not shake ourselves out of the myths of modernity that now own us, and they own us as deeply as any form of slavery, if we do not shake ourselves out of that, then, in fact, uh, our grandchildren, this is not news, good news for a 10-year-old, because no 10-year-old today faces the kinds of freedom that I faced as a 10-year-old. Yes, there were difficulties in my life, nuclear war and blah, 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 blah. But the fact was, when I was born, we could virtually guarantee anybody born when I was that you could live your life out to its extent before your culture collapsed under its own weight. You cannot say that to a 10-year-old if, you if you're actually current with uh, current research today. Now, we're also seeing, we're seeing probably not 10-year-olds, but we're starting to see a new militancy in the 12, 13, 14, and 15-year-olds that they have, they have wised up uh, as to what their life and future could be. And our job, in part, is to cheer them. It's not to necessarily agree with everything they say, but it is to cheer them. If we're involved politically, as, as I am not, uh, I mean, I have been involved at times in partisan ways. At the time, I'm not. But I will provide advice to any political party that's willing to talk to me, which tend not to be the governments in power. But the, the interesting thing is that demograph the demographics of the modern world that will feed those people is actually uh, young people 
their mothers and their grandparents, that that demographic is responsive enough to what's going on that it is conceivable. Uh, It's certainly the case that in the 2020s, even there will be some mainline political parties that become radical enough that if you look back on it and said in 2015, would we have imagined that in as little as 10 years, the government in power would be saying these things, virtually everybody would say unimaginable. But that's just a sign of that virtually, as you know, virtually all of the research on the physical world is coming back to say things are at least as bad as we thought they were, and in many cases are worse than our worst case scenario. There's been very little in the way of major research projects in the last 15 years that have said, relax, folks, it's not as bad as we thought. Yes, indeed. We're at the last question, Ruben. So uh, we've covered a lot uh, in our time. Is there is there something that you want to say as the last comment, advice, whatever, to the field and to the, uh, to the listeners? I want to say, I mean, the question might be, in a sense, Ruben, if you know, if you've read as much as you claim to have read, I mean, if we take it, if we take your word for it, that you actually know something about today's environmental science and economics and whatever else, doesn't mean I'm an expert, but you've actually done enough to, to be somewhat knowledgeable. And you're as in one sense, depressing with the news of the path that we're on as a modern civilization, how do you deal with hope? And my answer is, the only way I have come to know how to deal with hope is to face the despair head on and to work through it and to seek a hope that is the other side of despair. So that I have come to talk about in talks to other people as well as a talk that's up on YouTube about post-despair hope. I don't have much time for a pre-despair hope. (laughs) The kind of optimism that our culture runs on tends to be frightened by serious data and serious conversations, and it collapses. And that's not helpful. I mean, look at the fact that around the world, COVID is driving mental illness, and we haven't even known about it for a year. And I don't mean that as a cheap shot at us as humanity, but it does mean that the cultures we live in are not in any sense future ready. If we collapse under stress of only a year's stress, what shape are we going to be in after a decade of it? And so my sense is that there will be despair. And I'm one of the few futurists, certainly in North America, willing to say that openly, that there already is despair now if you just pay attention to those who are despairing and they are legion and it will get worse. And what we need is a grounding that is deep enough to be able to hope in the face of knowing that statistically, if you want your money to be safe, you will bet against the future of humanity. But that as a human person who is loving and empathetic and fit to live with, you cannot live this way. And therefore, you're going to bet your life on a bet that is irrational by First Enlightenment standards. Besides, you've also figured out that if the First Enlightenment standards are right, there's nobody to pay you off if you win your bet. (laughs) 
So you lose anyway. So it's actually a small risk to learn to live in a way that's committed to the deep work that we have to do in the 21st century. Thanks, Reverend. Look, it's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to to have you on the podcast. Thank you very, very much for taking some time out to spend some time with the, with the FuturePod community. Peter, you're a gem. I honor you for doing the series. We've been in just enough contact to know that at some non-trivial levels, we are cousins. And for that, I am thankful. Thanks, Reuben. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.